So hello and welcome to another interview with experts. I'm Frederick Dunn, and today my guest is an up-and-coming honeybee researcher who resides in the state of Florida. I think you'll be as impressed as I was to learn about this 10th grader's research activities at the University of Florida in Gainesville. In this interview, we cover some very important topics that are valuable to beekeepers. Please welcome the Broadcom Masters winner of the National Scientific Research Award, Atreya Manaswi. Here's Atreya. So my name is Atreya Manaswi. Um, I'm located in Orlando, Florida. I attend Orlando Science High School. I'm a 10th grader. And I'm very, very interested in honeybee research, which I've been pursuing for the last four years. Okay, so well, thank you, and and welcome to my uh, new category of up and coming beekeepers. And you've got substantial credentials, Atreya. So I'm really glad to have you here because I think you're going to probably be a very good inspiration for other beekeepers that are in your age group, high school level, people that are moving forward and understanding the science behind beekeeping, which is very important to me because you can validate what you think you know about bees. So I'm glad that you're here. And what I'd like to start off with is why bees and when did that become a point of interest for you? Thank you. So this actually began um, a few summers ago when I went on a short fishing trip with a friend and his grandfather. And so while we were on the boat, my friend's grandfather started telling us some stories about his beekeeping practices. And he's about 80 years old. So he would tell us about how decades ago he would get dozens of barrels of honey and how that season he'd gotten merely three. So this was really shocking to me and he started to describe this almost tearfully. And after getting back home, I dug into the research and the statistics and I did some brainstorming and I really came to know about how much decline our honeybee colonies in the United States alone have faced throughout the last couple of decades. And so I was really inspired by this. Um, and so in the next few weeks, I attended the South Florida Bee College where I met Dr. Jamie Ellis from the University of Florida. And that's really where things took off and I began my honeybee research journey. Now, does that, you said his uh, honey production dropped to three barrels? Yeah. Does, does that mean he's currently keeping bees at that age? Yes, yes. So he actually has a son uh, and then he has a grandson as well. So the whole family keeps bees. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah. What did he think was the number one reason why uh, the production was so low. Mm -hmm. So they have a, a big concern and I'm sure a lot of beekeepers do. And this isn't just in Florida, this is all across the world, infamous mm -hmm. varroa mite. And so that's really taken a toll on uh, a lot of these beekeepers hives. So that's one of their main concerns uh, that they really have. And obviously there's not just that, but the varroa mite is a very big factor, but you have other things such as the chemicals that beekeepers are using, deforestation, climate change, um, and a lot of other pests and parasites and also diseases. So it's not really one single cause that is contributing to this bee decline in that phenomenon known as colony collapse disorder, but rather a myriad of different factors that are synergizing together and contributing to this mm -hmm. population decline that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So you said uh, you met Jamie Ellis or you worked with a program that was organized by him? Yes, sir. So uh, Dr. Jamie Ellis uh, was the, my first mentor I actually met at the South Florida Bee College. So the mm -hmm. University of Florida uh, hosts a bee college every, actually it's biannually, uh, once in the March 
once in the spring and then once in the fall. So I attended the conference in the spring uh, and I attended a seminar that he was giving on honeybee, I believe it was anatomy and physiology. So after the seminar, I went up and asked him a question and then we just started speaking. Um, and I was invited into the laboratory a few weeks after that. And so I got to take a tour. Um, and so that was a really great experience. And so the following year, I ran an experiment in the laboratory under Dr. Ellis. Uh, so he was my first mentor. Mm. Well, that's a pretty good first mentor, get a world-class entomologist and show you personal attention. So how many, how many other kids were there in this bee college? I did not see any other children there or any other teenagers. Uh, I was the only person of my age there, really. Um, it was just a lot of adults, beekeepers who wanted to learn more. And uh, apart from that, I feel like that bee college is just a really great environment for these beekeepers to have discourse. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, clubs are a great way for beekeepers to communicate with one another. Uh, but that South Florida Bee College is really a great way for beekeepers to learn, especially uh, blossoming beekeepers, uh, budding budding beekeepers, uh, mm -hmm. to learn about different aspects of beekeeping and also the scientific aspect of that. A lot of, um, a lot of different researchers will present at those uh, bee colleges. And so you can take a lot from them and learn about, as you mentioned, the science of beekeeping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then how did you get that inside track with him? How did you impress him? Just uh, you see him at, you make a first impression, you did an elevator pitch about how interested you are and how you'd really like to see that uh, laboratory environment. How did that go? Yeah, that's basically what it comes down to. And so it can be really daunting as a, a student to try and approach a professor. Um, this is in any sort of environment. Um, and this, uh, what I'm about to say applies for a lot of kids that are trying to get into research or are trying to just approach um, people that they want to get in contact with. And this is almost like cold emailing or cold calling, but this is just in person and approach directly. So essentially, I just um, essentially pitched my interest um, about these honeybees and I shared my story and what I learned. And it seemed to really resonate with Dr. Ellis. I believe he actually started very young as well. Uh, and so I told him about my first science fair that I did in the third grade and my keen interest in natural sciences um, and science itself. And so he really seemed to resonate with that. Mm -hmm. And so then... That's where it all began, really. That's cool. First impression can work. So let's talk about this third grade science fair. What was your what was your project for that? Yeah, so I began very basic. This was actually uh, an experiment on strawberries. So I was looking at strawberries and what temperatures essentially they would last the longest in. And so this is very elementary, very basic, but mm -hmm. it was a start for me. And that meant something. So I was just uh, looking at for example, in room temperature and then in the fridge and the freezer, where do the strawberries last the longest and not gain mold? Something very, very simplistic. But mm -hmm. I did start somewhere and I gained some sort of recognition or some award. And that served as some sort of intrinsic motivation for me to try and continue. And so you have to start somewhere. And that's another piece of advice for any youth that are watching. Um, you mm -hmm. have to start somewhere and just take steps towards your ultimate goal. That's very interesting that you were trying to find out what uh, temperature and environment would keep the strawberry freshest for the longest in the refrigerator because I actually did a review of a product that was designed to do exactly that. And I believe it was made by Tupperware and it had a vented top and it was a special container that would extend the freshness. Did you look at established um, containers that were designed to do that? Or did you just look at temperature, humidity and parameters like that? Yeah, I was just looking at the parameters such as temperature and humidity. I really didn't consider which container they were being stored in. Mm -hmm. That could definitely be a variable that you could consider and run another experiment on. 
Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Now it's interesting that you have you have a definite scientific path, by the way. And I'm looking at your coursework here, and everything is AP biology, chemistry, environmental science, statistics. So you're taking all the easy classes we can see, and uh, <laughs> that's my sarcasm. But uh, so your science focus. What influence have your parents had on this track? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So both of my parents actually come from a scientific background. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they actually are immigrants. Uh, they came from India about 15 years ago. Uh, and so my father and both my mother have uh, interest in medicine. Uh, my father is a doctor. And so growing up, I always had that influence. Um, and so this is in a positive way. Mm -hmm. I was exposed to it early on and I really got to see the side of science that not a lot of kids get exposed to being that I had two parents that were of that background. And so they would buy me like chemistry kits, uh, give me different uh, tools to play with when I was little. These are things like, um, you know, different skeletons that I could put together, those chemistry kits, uh, Legos, a lot of these things that like sort of fostered my interest in the STEM mm -hmm. field. Um, and so that was really positive and it positively impacted me, ultimately leading to me trying to pursue STEM activities in elementary school mm -hmm. and then building upon that in middle school and eventually high school. So it did have a salient role in really shaping who I am today. So with your father as a physician, is he in research or is he practicing medicine? What's he doing? Mm -hmm. Right. He's strictly in uh, practice. He's so in he practice. hasn't really, yes, he's a physician. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like he has a lab that you could go to and kind of follow around and see what they're doing. No, unfortunately, I have to stick to that cold call approach. And yeah. so a lot of teenagers do have to do that. But I feel like it's a really great way to try and put yourself out there and practice uh, because that's what the real world is really like. Nobody's going to mm -hmm. hand you an opportunity. You have to really um, mm -hmm. make a, your, yourself a resume, make yourself a profile, and then sort of pitch that and uh, see where you can get with it. Mm -hmm. So so now the program that Jamie Ellis is running there, uh, the B College, is this an ongoing thing or is that a one-off? How is that working? Mm -hmm. So that's uh, still an ongoing thing. They have that biannually each year. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was actually looking at speaking at one of those conferences, doing a sort of research update, a presentation mm -hmm. there. And so I think I'm speaking there in the, the spring session. And so it goes over the course of about, I think it's a weekend or two days. It might be a Friday, Saturday or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Mm -hmm. But there are lectures throughout the whole course of the day. The beekeepers can go out with one of those master beekeepers from UF uh, that are certified and go out into the hives and observe different management techniques. So it's a very informative discussion. It's very open. Mm. Um, and so beekeepers of all uh, experience levels can attend and ultimately gain something out of it or meet new people. Mm -hmm. I did learn something about the University of Florida Master Beekeeping Program. They have no minimum age. What is the youngest master beekeeper currently certified through the University of Florida that you know of? I actually am not familiar with that program specifically. Okay. Uh, I have heard about it. I haven't actually looked into the requirements for that. But now that you mention it, that is something interesting that I may pursue. <laughs> yes, it's the only one I know of that allows people under the age of 18. Uh, so mm -hmm. that is pretty interesting. And you said that uh, to update your research that you're doing. So what kind of research is ongoing for you related to honeybees? Right. So I've been doing this over the course of four years. Uh, and so I can share my first year project and then I'll delve into what my other research has been about. So essentially the first year of research that I did was on nutrition management with pollen substitutes. And then the second, third and fourth year, 
Uh, that's all a continuation project on small hive beetles. So I'll begin with the first year's worth of research. Mm -hmm. And really what I was looking at in that first year, and this is a laboratory study in the in vitro setting. So I was doing this with honeybees inside cages in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. So my main focus here was to look at different artificial pollen substitutes. And so these are different diet substitutes that can be given by beekeepers to the hives when there's pollen dearth or when pollen isn't diverse in the natural environment. And so they can feed this in the form of patties or also uh, powder outside the hive and the bees can feed upon this. So this contains things like pea protein, um, yeasts and those sorts of things. So it is very high in proteins, fats, carbs, minerals, all sorts of macro and micronutrients that the bees would want when there's no natural pollen. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, moving on from that, I was looking at three commercially available pollen substitutes these were AP23, Mega B, and Ultra B, and then also wildflower pollen. So I had for these four treatments. And inside those cages, I had 10 bees, and I was essentially giving these bees uh, four options, those four that I mentioned, and seeing which one they would feed upon the most. And so this was done for 10 different cages with 10 bees inside of them for a total of 100 bees. And then I also had uh, evaporative cages. And so these evaporative cages didn't have any bees inside of them. And the reason I have evaporatives uh, were because these pollen substitutes are very high in their fat and lipid content. And so because of that, they can evaporate very easily. And the parameter I was really looking at is, okay, I put the treatment in at the beginning of the day, and then I take that same treatment out at the end of the day. And then I'm looking at the difference to see how much the bee actually consumed of that treatment in the cage. But that doesn't account for the amount that evaporated outside of the cage. And so that's why evaporatives were set up. And so I did get a little bit into the details with that uh, in the weeds there. But basically, I was looking at which diet the bees were consuming the most. And ultimately, I found that uh, pollen was the diet that they prefer the most. And then the second most preferred diet was AP23. And so I did that for my first year uh, with Dr. Jamie Ellis. Pause. In the laboratory. Yes, sir. Okay, so aside from real pollen, it wasn't ultra B dry pollen sub, it was, say the other one? It was AP23. AB23. And where did AP. you- AP? Yes, sir. And AP. where did you source that? Right, so these were the sort of most popular uh, pollen substitutes being used uh, by beekeepers uh, locally. So that's uh, why they were chosen. And so they were ordered directly from the website in the, in the solid patty form. Mm -hmm. And then and to the bees. can I ask another question about the experiment that you were doing? The bees that you chose to do this study, what was the age of those bees? In other words, are these nurse bees? What, you know, how far along were they and how did you decide? Right. So these were new bees. They were baby bees. Uh, they mm -hmm. just come out of the brood. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and an interesting phenomenon we actually saw with that. And so this was a team of us working on this project and we're actually working on publishing this, but I'll, I'll speak about that later. Mm -hmm. um, what we were seeing is that throughout the course of the study, throughout that week, which we were feeding them those different diets, we saw that there was an increase in pollen almost exponentially um, as the days went on. And so this was likely showing us that as the bees were developing, they needed more sustenance. And so they were reverting to pollen uh, to use that. And so that was something interesting we saw. Hmm. Yeah. And what part, if any, did temperature play on their consumption right. rate? 
Yeah, so the bees were maintained at a constant temperature. Um, and so while they were not being observed, they were in incubators. Um, and so we didn't actually look at the, the role that the temperature had specifically. We were just looking at the, the preference of the different bees towards the diets. Mm -hmm. but that could be another phenomenon to consider, varying the temperatures and keeping them in different settings and seeing mm -hmm. if that had anything to do with it, depending upon the heat. So what was the incubation temperature? Mm -hmm. I believe it was about, um, I think it was 30 something degrees Celsius. So what is that in Fahrenheit? I'm not exactly sure of the conversion. <laughs> I think it's 80 or 85. 85. Okay. Um, so lower yeah. than brood temperature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so they were kept at that uh, throughout the course of the study. Okay. Those are interesting. So you're learning about controls and parameters mm -hmm. of testing for repeatability and things like that. What about the genetics of the bees that you chose? Mm -hmm. Yes. So for the genetics, there was no genetic testing done. These are just the hives that were taken uh, from the apiary that's managed by the University of Florida. Mm -hmm. The genetics could potentially have a role on how much pollen they're actually feeding upon. And then also mm -hmm. the preference uh, of the bees towards the diets, but that wasn't really analyzed. Okay. Very interesting. And you say that this study will be published. Do you have a ballpark of when? Right. So it's currently going through peer review. Right. Right. So it may take a few months for it to come out. Uh, it's going into the Journal of Applied Entomology. Okay. So you're thinking maybe January? Yeah, potentially. Uh, maybe by the end of this year, or early next year. And will Dr. Ellis's name be on that or who's? Right. right. So yes, Dr. Ellis is the, the last author on that paper. Okay. Yeah. That's good stuff. You know, that's at your level in, in high school, being able to be involved in a, a study like that at the B-Lab, that's very interesting. And what a great opportunity for anybody, really. So I have to ask, what's the long-term goal for you uh, related to bees or science in general? Where are you headed overall? Right. So one thing I can definitely see myself doing in the future, I'd say 15, 20 years from now, is pursuing this research and just maybe research in general. It's something I find very interesting doing experiments in the laboratory, also field trials. I forgot to share my story about that. I'll get to that after this, okay. uh, the second, third, and fourth year. But doing those experiments, collecting data, analyzing that data through statistics, and then writing it up and presenting it, it's just a process I've fallen in love with throughout the mm -hmm. course of these last few years. And I really love that. So I can definitely see myself doing any sort of research 15, 20 years from now and pursuing that as a career potentially. Okay. So career research, is that strictly related to bees and bee nutrition or entomology in a broader scope or mm -hmm. what? Right. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'm very interested in uh, the honeybee research. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure what degree I would be wanting to pursue in this uh, if I were to continue it throughout the long term, bee specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, but just yeah, research in general is just something that I have open as a possibility for mm -hmm. me as of now. Are you looking hard at the University of Florida or you want to go somewhere else? The University of Florida is ranked very well. And mm -hmm. if I had the opportunity to attend, I would, I would consider it. Okay. Yeah. And their, uh, their B program, the B lab specifically, uh, it ranks very, very well. I think it's amongst the top few institutions, uh, not just nationally, but globally for honeybee research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now you can tell us about your other studies. Sure, sure. <laughs> so the second, third, and fourth year, they focused on hive beetles. 
And so these small hive beetles uh, may be unheard of in the north or beekeepers may not consider them much of a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, but down south, as you keep progressing towards climates where there's a higher humidity and higher temperature, they tend to be increasingly worse. And even in the northern states, or just the northern hemisphere in general, you can see that once these hive beetles get out of control, they can really have negative impacts on the hive. Mm -hmm. So for anybody that doesn't know, these hive beetles are like four to six millimeters in length. So they're very tiny. Um, and what they do is they, they have four stages in their life cycle, an egg stage, a larval stage, a pupil stage, and the adult stage. Now these beetles feed and defecate. They feed on the, the pollen, the honey, the brood, the cappings, the wax, and then the larvae specifically will defecate all throughout the hive. And so this results in the fermentation of the, the pollen and also the honey uh, inside the hive. Mm -hmm. And eventually what this can lead to if the infestation is very bad is the bees absconding entirely from the hive. And so this will cause mm -hmm. the, the hive yeah. to collapse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so what I was looking at with these beetles is basically as of now, there are quite a bit of treatments available for these beetles, but a lot of these are chemical based. Uh, treatment mm -hmm. methods. And these chemicals not only pose a severe risk to wildlife, aquatic organisms, humans, and honeybees themselves. Um, so that's, that's one thing that they pose a danger to these different organisms. The other thing is that they're also extremely expensive. I've purchased these chemical strips and my estimates uh, based on what I've seen online is just for treatment of one hive, it can cost anywhere from 16 to $22 for treating with, and this is the chemical I'm talking about is uh, comophos, checkmite strips. You say comophos, or a lot of people say comophos. That's actually one of the things that is residual within the beeswax, correct? And Right, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but so- it's, and But it's, it's comophos just... is the pronunciation you're saying? Yes, so I, I have heard some people say comophos, comophos, uh, whichever <laughs> way. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure of the exact- How, did, how does Dr. Ellis so... name it? What does he call it? I actually haven't heard him say it either. Oh, we need <laughs> have to, to make to find him out. pronounce these things. Okay. <laughs> and not to yeah. interrupt too much here, but mm -hmm. um, see, here's the problem with a lot of uh, backyard beekeepers and people that are just keeping bees and kind of following their own instincts as far as treatment. Small high beetles are a huge thing, comes up all the time, does not apply to me because as you mentioned, where I live in the snow belt, I haven't seen a beetle. That's why I can't test for them. But there's a thing called the peppermint challenge. Have you heard of that? Uh, does that have to do with the, the varroa? Uh, it's not varroa mites. It has to do with uh, small height beetles and getting them out of their hives by using crushed up peppermint candy. Have you heard of it? Oh, yes, yes. I was actually speaking to a group of beekeepers and somebody brought that up. Yeah. I was thinking they were talking about the, uh, the scented oils using with the varroa, but I do remember that. Mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing about that? I actually don't know too much about Well, that no, I was, I was actually hoping that you and Dr. Ellis had touched on that a little bit because um, I have concerns whenever there's an essential oil like peppermint being used and, and in an uncontrolled kind of way, but I think they're crushing peppermint candy and putting it on, somebody will see this and make a comment down in the video, but uh, I think they're putting it on the inner cover and things like that because these are areas where the small hive beetle adults hide and apparently it drives them out. But I don't know anything about secondary impact on the bees, the larvae and things like that. So it would have I been interesting if, if peppermint had been discussed there at the lab. 
Right, right. No, I can definitely look into that and get back to you. I could see that getting into the the hive, though. If it's just peppermint candy that's being crushed, that could definitely make its way as right. a residual. And on the topic of residuals, is comophos. There's been a lot of studies, and not just uh, comophos, but these imidacloprids, a lot of these pesticides um, and neonicotinoids. So a lot of these have been found in residual hive products, such as... Say, say um, a neonicotinoid again. Neonicotinoid. <laughs> <laughs> neonicotinoid neonicotinoid <laughs> neonicotinoid which people just call them neonics so it's, neonics. it's fun to hear yeah. how people pronounce different things in in different parts although i don't think florida is associated with any like there's no accents down in florida are there do you have like oh, region, south florida regional accents yeah south florida does have some heavy accents that i have yeah. heard i went down to the everglades once um but yeah they do have some accents down there okay uh, yeah. Either way, it makes its way into these hive products such as propolis, wax, royal jelly, comb. And so a lot of these things are ultimately used um, in the beauty and the pharmaceutical industries, and they make their way into our bodies. Honey, for example, we're consuming that. Uh, so that really does the chemical that we're using inside the hive can make its way into our body. Mm -hmm. And so that was what was of concern to me. And so then I wanted to look at the organic aspect of this rather than treating with chemicals, treating with some sort of organic agent. Mm -hmm. And so what we sought out to do was test seven organic agents in the form of a field trial. And so these agents ranged from yeasts to scented oils such as peanut oil and grapeseed oil, purees such as cantaloupe puree, mango puree, um, and then also beer. And so these are a lot of different organic compounds that are odorous. That's the characteristic they all have in common. They're very smelly, basically. Um, and the control that was used in this study was apple cider vinegar. And so the reason those specific compounds were chosen is because there is some research that indicates that these beetles can fundamentally feed and reproduce on tree sap, rotting fruits, and such odorous things. Mm -hmm. um, and so they actually belong to a family of coleoptera known as nidadulidae. And they've been shown to be able to fundamentally reproduce on those odorous things. Hmm. And so those seven compounds are tested in a field trial for six weeks uh, with 24 honeybee colonies. And so that's like over 1 million bees. And so I got a, a stung a lot of times during that process. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot about the hardship and uh, the determination that really goes into beekeeping and how hard it is to put food onto our plates. And I came to appreciate that. Mm -hmm. uh, but either way, the, how the study was broken down was that each week, I actually have one of them here, these beetle blaster traps were taken mm -hmm. and they were filled about halfway with solution. So 10 to 12 millimeters is what's good for these mini beetle blaster. And these are just six inches mm -hmm. if, everybody, if anybody's interested in that. Uh, so they're filled about halfway and then placed uh, between the Langstroth frames in the hive in the first super and then the second super. And then they were left for a week. And then the following week they were collected and then a new trap was put in. So each week uh, we would consecutively get capture and you count the amount of beetles inside these traps. And then at the end of the week, after the raw data, it was all statistically analyzed. Um, and so what I found was that of those seven treatments, a beer, a lager beer actually, it's Miller High Life, was found to be the most effective treatment by far. What? Yeah, shocking. Miller right? High Life. See, I don't even like beer. It's... <laughs> Miller High Life beer, who came up with that as the, I mean, beer in general, but who decided that that was the specific brand uh, to use? Right. 
So I actually chose that brand because it was inexpensive and readily available. And I did, by the way, for anybody watching and was wondering, uh, I'm not over 18. Uh, I mean, 21. So mm -hmm. I did purchase that under adult supervision. Uh, but that was really chosen because it was inexpensive and readily available. And so the reason actually the hypothesis behind why beer was chosen is because when the larvae are actually in the hive and they defecate in the honey, there's this yeast associated with them. It's called Kadama omeri, K omeri. And so what that uh, fermentation does is it releases this chemical compound called isoamyl acetate. And so that's essentially a honeybee alarm pheromone. And so when that's released from the hive uh, through the fermentation, it essentially alerts other beetles and it can serve as a sort of attractive mechanism to them. And so trying to mirror that hypothesis uh, that's also through sugar fermentation, the yeast doing that. Alcohol fermentation, which is where the yeast are again breaking down sugar and producing alcohol, mm -hmm. was thought to be something similar that could yield uh, like an effective result. And it showed that it was very effective inside the hive and that this alcohol was working. That is really interesting. So, and you said, and you put this specifically in the mini beetle blaster. Did you try other configurations or other ways to house that bait or mm -hmm. what right. did you try? Yeah, this was tested specifically in this beetle blaster trap, mm -hmm. but tests haven't been done in uh, different sort of traps. But the hypothesis is that anything that uses an attractive mechanism, beekeepers mm -hmm. using any sort of oil or uh, anything that you can commercially buy and then place in a trap to serve as an attractant, which is what that solution in there is known as, mm -hmm. beer could work in any of those traps as well. Because ultimately, it was shown that in those upper supers, this is working very well to lure those beetles from inside the hive, working as an in-hive attractant. Mm -hmm. And so further tests could be done upon that to see also locations within the hive. Uh, where it would be the most effective, but it was placed in the upper supers because these beetles like to crawl around throughout the hive, especially mm -hmm. seeking out cracks and crevices, trying to evade the bees. And so the top supers, especially when you pop open that lid, you can see a lot of beetles just crawling around on there. So that's why they were placed in those upper supers. And so what, that was the first year's worth of research. Can I, let's pause there for a second. What else did you find in the trap besides uh, small hive beetles, if anything? Right. So you'll see a lot of stuff show up in here. A lot of different cool things. You can see sometimes cockroaches in here. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see ants. You'll see debris from the hive. The bees are just cleaning out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these traps will be empty. Sometimes they will be filled with beetles. Uh, so you can see a lot of different things in here. I haven't seen a bee in here up until date, though. I've never seen a bee. Well, it's probably size so that a bee can't get through it, right? What is the size right, of the right. openings on there? Uh, this is probably only like half, maybe a centimeter. And so these are very, very tiny. But as far as there's a grid there too, so that wouldn't be right, cool. right. Yeah, okay. So yeah, they're, so I'm sure they're sized to block worker bees. But uh, Right, right. Okay, so we can go on to the next study. I didn't mean to hold you up. I just have so many questions. <laughs> okay. Sure. So the second year's worth of research was really looking at taking that beer that was found in the first year and trying to refine that. And so what I mean by that is basically beer has a 90 to 95% water concentration. Uh, it's very diluted. Mm -hmm. And so the hypothesis was that if you could concentrate that solution in something pure in the laboratory, then it would be much more effective than just plain beer itself. And so there were two goals for that study, really. The first goal was to make that blend, that synthetic blend being created, 
uh, more attractive. And then the second was to make that blend more affordable. So more attractive and more affordable. And so with that, uh, the study was basically looking at volatiles in the beer. And so volatiles are just chemical compounds that evaporate very readily. Mm -hmm. Now, how this was done basically is by taking something known as a polymer. Um, and so this is 10 uh, It's a porous polymer resin. And basically, uh, this is a glass tube and it's filled with this polymer inside of it. Um, and so when you take a beer bottle, I don't have any pictures with me at the moment, but how the volatiles were extracted from the beer is basically by attaching this to a vacuum and then placing this inside uh, a beer bottle and then running the vacuum. And so what that did is basically the air from inside that beer container was mm -hmm. pulled and trapped inside this polymer. So this is the neck of the bottle. And so this was placed inside and the vacuum was turned on. So the volatiles are trapped inside this polymer. And so this was done for multiple different collections and also different times, one minute, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh, and so there were a lot of different trials performed for that collection. Mm -hmm. And then after that, uh, this polymer, the rod was placed inside an instrument known as a GCMS. Uh, and so basically what this instrument does is it breaks down and analyzes the chemical composition of the sample that's been placed inside of it. And it produces a reading that's characteristic and it's very spiky. So each mm -hmm. of these spikes that go up and down represent a chemical that's been identified. Mm -hmm. And basically after analyzing that, there were chemical compounds that were chosen and putting it very simplistically, basically the compounds that weigh less were the ones that were selected and also mm -hmm. shown to be the most abundant in the sample. And this is because those compounds with a lower molecular weight those are carried more easily in the air and thus they're picked up more readily by the beetle rather than those heavier compounds that sit in mm -hmm. the air and aren't as easily carried by the wind, for example, in the hive. Mm -hmm. Now, after identifying those uh, relatively lighter compounds, they were put through something called an EAG, which is an electroantenography. And so this is a very, very fun process to do in the laboratory. Basically, you're taking these beetles, which are four millimeters, six millimeters in length, and putting them under a microscope and then trying to extract their antennae from their heads. And so the reason you're doing that is because you're basically looking at the response of the antenna of the beetle to these different volatile compounds. And so you place that antenna onto a forked electrode and then you expose it to a specific chemical that you have that you wanna test. And then you can basically see the response of that antenna to a specific compound and see whether it's a positive or a negative, how it's responding. Okay, wait a second. So this antenna is removed from the bee. Beetle. Beetle. Oh, it's okay. It's the beetle. And it's placed on these electrodes. And then this, this antenna responds autonomously from the beetle itself. Like just the antenna responds to these scents in the air. Is that yes, what you're saying? Yes. So these beetle, these beetle antennae are only live for three to five minutes. And they'll actually die after that. But the electrode is able to pick up what they're sensing from those three to five minutes. So time that is, is really I just have to tell you, that's weird. To put a scientific term on it, that's that's weird. Didn't you think that was weird? And you're looking at this little, you're looking at this response. Wasn't that a little bit mind blowing that you could get a reaction from a detached? Yeah, you know? yeah, it's very interesting. And so this, uh, this EAG has been widely documented in the literature and it's commonly used by um, a lot of your researchers. And so when I first heard yeah. of it, it was a very interesting process. And so it was really fun to try it out and see how hey, it was actually working. That is new to me. That is really interesting. Okay. Yeah.
So after looking at the responses of those antenna to specific chemical compounds, a blend was created. And so there were four chemicals that were used in that blend. Uh, and so after that, there were basically two blends that were created, one that had a water base and then one that had an oil base. And then those are two treatments. Then beer was tested and also mineral oil. So there were a total of four treatments that were tested in that second year trial. Mm -hmm. And so in that second year trial, there were 28 different hives used at three different apiary sites throughout Florida. Uh, and so this is a very extensive trial run for eight weeks with a lot of extensive statistical analysis. And ultimately, there was one blend that was shown to be much more effective than beer. It was shown to be five times more effective than beer and also half as expensive. Wow. And uh, if, I, if I didn't mention it earlier, that beer was shown to be 33 times more effective than apple cider and also a third of the cost. So for anybody who's watching, any beekeepers or any um, commercial or hobbyist, whichever it may be, if you're currently using apple cider as an organic treatment to control for your beetles, maybe reconsider and try using Miller High Life because oh, it was I can shown tell to be you ahead a lot more effective. I can tell you that people bailed out on this video as soon as you said Miller High Life. <laughs> I mean, they'll come back later, but that's, you know, that's the nature of uh, our culture today. If you're watching a YouTube and it's a, an issue that you face and high beetles are a huge issue, uh, the minute you mentioned uh, Miller High Life and the, the mini uh, trap there, I know that's <laughs> what they're going to jump on. So go ahead with the, the more effective, five times better treatment. Five times better. Yeah. Five times better than a treatment that was already shown to be much better than the other organic agents tested. Yeah. So five times better and then also half as expensive. And so I should mention here the economic aspect of this. Beer was shown to be merely five cents for treatment in a hive. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, looking at that chemical, it's 16 to $22. So this is 475 times cheaper than that gold standard chemical treatment mm -hmm. that uh, what we're looking at. And now you may be asking, okay, well, you did that first year, which is where you're looking at organic agents. The second year where you looked at that blend versus organic agents, where's that comparison between the chemical agent and then the organic agent. And so that is the third year study. And mm -hmm. so that's what we're currently running right now this year. And um, that, that research is ongoing, but basically we're comparing the comophos, or uh, however you'd like to pronounce that, comophos, yeah, comophos. That's fine. People know what you're yeah. saying, no matter, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> basically looking at that chemical and then comparing it against the blend and also mm -hmm. beer and an organic control and seeing how well that does in a neck-and-neck -neck study. And so the goal of this study is to be able to present a cost-benefit analysis, looking at the cost of it and then also how much more effective it is through that trial. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. And uh, and this is going to be part of that published paper. Yes. So this is going to be a separate publication. Separate publication. Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> call me Fred. I know I'm old and stuff. And you naturally want to say, sir. Okay. So that that is very, very interesting stuff. And it addresses a problem on a practical level that many beekeepers all across the South face. It's the number one question that I probably get aside from varroa mite treatments and controls. Um, is it now, there's something we'll backtrack to the small high beetle because this question comes up sometimes. Uh, I can tell you a method that I learned to tell the difference between a small high beetle larvae and uh, a wax moth larvae. 
We look at, uh, do you know, what's your method yes. for telling the difference? Yes. So this is actually something I do a lot of different seminars uh, at different beekeeping clubs across the nation. And so that's actually something that I always mention because it's a common question. Mm-hmm. And so one of the biggest things is obviously the webbing and cocooning you see in the hives with the wax moths right. versus these beetles depositing the eggs. Mm-hmm. Another big thing is that the wax moths are a lot larger. They're like twice the size in length and then also uh, four times as thick. And the mm-hmm. other thing is that they have hairs covering their entire body. They're Mm-hmm. segmentation on their abdomen is a lot less prominent. And so these sort of definitive characteristics are what you can use. Did you ever, because they do, ultimately there is a phase where they're at the same size, however brief. And have you ever done the rolling them in your fingers? I have not. Because no. the small hive beetle larvae will feel like a gummy bear almost. It has a rubbery feel to it. But if you do that to a wax moth larvae, that's the same size, it just squishes up in your fingers. It has no resilience whatsoever. So there's a tactile uh, method for if they're if they're the same size. Uh, all right, that's interesting. All right, so what else do you want to share with us that's going on that's fascinating in your research world? Yeah, so something I really uh, love to do, and I do this every year with my research, apart from just taking it, doing the research, and then uh, in the lab, and then trying to present it in the form of a paper, uh, I do a lot of science fairs. And so each year I love taking my research that I've conducted and then putting it onto a board and then presenting it at local fairs and then hoping to advance to different levels. Uh, and so throughout the last few years, I've been grateful and uh, very honored to have been, you know, reached a level. Uh, I would actually, this past summer, I was, uh, I qualified for something known as the International Biogenius Challenge. Um, and so that's a competition that different high schoolers uh, can participate in. So I applied as a at-large, basically they have one position that uh, a student can have. They have an application portal and students from all across our nation can submit for that. And they pick one student as an at-large winner. Mm -hmm. And then that at-large advances to the international challenge. So I was honored to have been selected as that at-large winner uh, for 2022. And so they took uh, me and I think it was 13 or 14 other finalists from uh, across our nation and then one student from Canada. And so we were flown out to San Diego. They have a very big bio-international convention there. And mm-hmm. so this had about 15,000 attendees from all across the globe, large pharmaceutical companies coming together uh, with these boots. Uh, and so it was like almost like a fair that you mm-hmm. had. So this is very, very interesting. We got to present our research there. And so I was recognized uh, as the highest honors awardee there. So that was a big mm-hmm. honor. Uh, and the previous year, I competed in the Broadcom Masters competition. And so this is a challenge for middle school students. Um, and so basically, students from all across the nation can apply to this competition and they select a top 300 and then a top 30. So Mm -hmm. I was grateful to have been selected as one of the top 30 students. And so in a normal year, they would take us out to Washington, D.C. But unfortunately, due to coronavirus Mm -hmm. that year, the pandemic, uh, we weren't able to go to Washington, D.C. that year and do in person. Mm -hmm. But the Society for Science, uh, which was a sponsor for that, was very generous. And they had a very, very engaging and entertaining virtual session for that. So this is over the course of a week. It's called mm-hmm. Finalist Week. Mm-hmm. And so me and 29 other students from all across the nation got to meet, do a lot of activities, team bonding, uh, those sorts of things. And it was very, very fun and entertaining. So I was engaged with that. Uh, and I was ultimately honored as the first place winner in the category of scientific research there. That's excellent. Those are great accomplishments, by the way. So congratulations on that. 
And uh, I have a question about that, though. When you get together and, and you've got these other students from across the country that are all competing, you also have very similar interests. Are you making friends with some of these other competitors? Yes, definitely. So it's not cutthroat competition. We're all yeah. competing against one another neck and neck. Um, it can feel like that sometimes, but personally, it doesn't feel like that. I mean, uh, one time I remember a memory we had, it was we were doing yoga together. <laughs> we were presenting our posters and then there was this, uh, this offside. And so there was a TV screen there and there was somebody doing yoga. And so we all joined in. Uh, we were playing ping pong one night until like 2 a.m. We went mm. swimming. So you make a lot of memories and you have a lot of fun there. So it's not just the competition and these individuals are like-minded mm -hmm. uh, and it's not like school or any other club that you'll go into and meet individuals. This is very, it's like a very special inner circle that you get uh, mm -hmm. access to. And there's a large network that you can create there. Mm -hmm. So it's a great experience. And I would say larger than just receiving feedback from any judges or having the opportunity to go there is really meeting these new people that are like-minded, having these other youth that are interested in science the same way you are. That sounds fantastic. Is it, now, it seems like headhunters would be there. There would be people throwing scholarships at you guys. Is that something you think maybe your junior year, you're going to actually be scouted, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes that does happen at these larger competitions. I haven't had it happen to me personally as of yet. Um, mm -hmm. But there are people for interviews. People will give you their cards, especially at that bio convention. Uh, people did actually give me some cards. And so these are people, different researchers or people who have labs or people that are interested in interviews mm -hmm. or even scholarships. Uh, they will contact you. Uh, and so it's a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it. Yeah. And I think I can't see it going bad for you, no matter no matter what, heading down the line. I think uh, I think your chances at University of Florida are extremely high if that's where you choose to go. But I think you're you're going to have a broad uh, list of uh, opportunities if you know Thank you. Just, just guessing you know so what's in it so it's a competition and what's in it for you like to win a competition like that what's the incentive to even participate for those that might be thinking about that right so uh, for somebody that may be thinking about it this is probably not the answer that maybe they want to hear but there's cash there's a lot of cash involved in okay. that no that's an that, incentive so yeah yeah so apart from that uh, it's really a good experience because this has happened to me before, starting at the regional level. And then after getting feedback from your judges, more than just getting an award or some cash certificate, you get their feedback and their input on it. And so this doesn't just help you develop your project in a better way, but it helps you develop as really a person and the way you're presenting your research or how you're presenting a presentation in any way. Uh, they give you a lot of critical feedback, especially at that national or international level. These judges are harsh, uh, harsh. And they hold no remorse in giving you critical feedback. Mm -hmm. And so that's something very insightful that somebody won't just tell you. And it's also very hard to get uh, for somebody mm -hmm. at the regional or state level, because these are people that have PhDs in the areas that you have presented your research. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they know a lot and they know probably more than you, uh, even in your specific field mm -hmm. of research that you did. So it can be a very great experience to get feedback from them. And you can certainly take away a lot from that. Uh, another thing that you can take away, as I mentioned earlier, is the network, the friends that you'll make there. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing would be that recognition that you get, whether that be, you know, monetary uh, or in the form of media. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, being able to take critical feedback. Uh, is that something that you find in your in your age group or your peers? Uh, do you find that it's a lot of people have difficulty accepting a criticism? 
Yeah, that can certainly be true. Um, but another thing that can happen with some individuals like that, or as you progress to that level, uh, another thing is there's imposter syndrome at that level because everybody there is just so good mm-hmm. that you almost feel that you're not good enough and you start to question sometimes why you reach that level and okay. why you're there. Um, but it, you, it's definitely important to be able to take that critical feedback because that's ultimately how you improve. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to take that feedback, uh, then you won't really get better because somebody has to say it to you and that's ultimately how you will improve. Mm-hmm. So being able to take that harsh feedback and not necessarily feedback in a negative way, but that positive feedback, positive mm-hmm. criticism is something you should be really open to and have a mindset for. Yeah, realizing that it's there to help you, not to put you down or, or push you back. Do you, do you mentor others at all? Do you reach out to others that uh, have similar interests? Yes, yes. So uh, I've, partake, I've partaken in mentoring some other younger students that are interested in science fair. Um, and so uh, I greatly enjoy that. Uh, another thing that I'm working on doing is actually starting a nonprofit organization uh, for students that are interested in STEM learning. Mm-hmm. And so this is currently a grassroots organization Um, I'm looking at doing some basic workshops at local schools, but my vision for this ultimately uh, next summer is hosting an international workshop with students from all across the globe, different countries um, and different schools and hosting uh, a wide array of students from different regions and focusing on different STEM topics and different tools and technologies that can really arm these students to work in the 21st century workforce. Mm That's fantastic. So for those of you that are watching or listening, uh, you'll be able to look down in the video description and any links, by the way, that you want to provide will be available there. And we will even update that for you so that people can follow you. Okay. Thank you. Get further information. So that's fantastic. Let's talk about uh, who you feel. Now, we know Dr. Ellis has had an impact on you. Who has really made a change? inspired you, gave you their time, uh, someone that really stood out helping you along. Right. So one person that first, the first person that comes to mind, and I'd also like to mention somebody else after this. Mm -hmm. uh, The first one would be my mentor at the USDA, uh, Dr. Charles Stahl. So I worked Mm -hmm. with him extensively and I still work with him. And I also work with Dr. Jamie Ellis uh, currently, but I've been working with Dr. Stahl throughout the past three years, and he's been very, very supportive of my work. Um, I can call him at sometimes late at night, 6, 7, 8 p.m., and he's willing to give me critical feedback. Um, I can brainstorm with research uh, on him. He's always willing to criticize me in a positive way, give me uh, no filtered feedback. And so he's been very instrumental in helping me with my research, and I'm very, very grateful to him. So uh, I always look up to him as a role model, and I'm very grateful for all he does for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, another person that has been very, very supportive of my work is one of my science teachers, Mrs. Bright. Uh, and so she was my ninth grade science teacher last year. And so I've worked very closely with her as well. And she supports me through science fairs. And mm-hmm. she's always there for me, uh, whether it be paperwork or another question, or just if I want to talk to her about something, mm-hmm. she's always there, uh, whether that be before school, during school or after school, mm-hmm. or even outside of school. Yeah, that's very meaningful. And I'm glad that you mentioned these people and including your your teacher too, because teachers, you know, you think they see thousands of students through the years. And uh, to find out that you've helped someone or had an impact on someone is one of the reasons that motivates people, hopefully to become teachers in the first place, is you really want to inspire someone and help them along. And I'm glad that you have those mentors. 
And you mentioned the USDA, what's going on with the US Department of Agriculture? What are you doing there? Right, so I actually worked in collaboration with my mentor who's at the USDA in my second year's worth of research. And so I continue to work with him. And so the last three years of research have been USDA funded mm -hmm. uh, on a grant. Uh, and in collaboration with the University of Florida as well. Okay. And so I've been working there, yeah, at their laboratory. That's fantastic. So tell us one interesting thing that's not related to beekeeping about yourself. Some Something you do or you excel at. I know that you're a second degree black belt in Taekwondo, but uh, yeah. what about something else? It's a little off center that maybe everybody wouldn't know. Right. So one thing that I do do is Taekwondo. Another thing that I really enjoy doing is theater. So like theatrical productions, uh, drama, okay. so getting on stage and doing, uh, and I take a lot of pride in taking antagonistic roles. So I've been doing this since about the third grade. I love putting on productions, getting in front of people, uh, captivating an audience. It's all very exciting to me. Mm -hmm. So in the third grade, the first play that I had was actually Peter Pan. And so I was amongst third, fourth, and fifth graders, and I was auditioning for the role of Captain Hook. And I didn't have a shot, I, at least I didn't think so, because I was competing against these seemingly upperclassmen, these fifth graders, these fourth graders. Mm -hmm. But after my audition, my teacher went up to my mom and said that I blew it out of the ballpark and that I did very, very well. And so I was cast for that role uh, of Captain Hook and Peter Pan. And I really, really enjoyed that being my first role. And from there, things just took off. I started participating in a lot of different summer camps and then also productions outside of school. And I've continued to do that. Actually, last year, I put on a play at my school. It was called I Don't Want to Talk About It. Uh, and so this was uh, for suicide and mental health awareness. And so I played the lead role in that. Um, I essentially had to shoot myself in that play. So it was some mm. very you know, serious content. And so I did enjoy putting that on. It wasn't typical of what I would normally perform, but I did learn a lot throughout that play. And so I always have a great time working with cast members and putting on a show, uh, blocking. It's all very fun to me. Did anyone video that production and make it available online somewhere? Unfortunately, I don't think uh, parents were allowed to record that. I think the uh, school may have a recording that I may have somewhere, but I could definitely share that. Yeah, it's special. Usually there's special licensing associated with that if you're going to put it on social media or whatever. But sometimes educational institutions can, are allowed to put excerpts and things like that. It would be fun to kind of for those to check that out. Um, how do people find out about what you're doing? Where do they follow you? Do you have social media? What's what's a way for viewers and listeners to follow you? Mm -hmm. So one thing I'm actually looking at uh, is creating a newsletter. So I wanted to, I'm going to create one for the month of October. And so that would be a great way for anybody who's watching if they want to catch up on okay. what I'm doing each month. I provide monthly updates, what I'm working on, different projects, mm -hmm. uh, different things that I'm working with like material that I'm interacting with, whether that be podcasts, books, music, mm -hmm. anything like that, interesting things I find. So it would be great if you wanted to subscribe to that, we can add that to the description if that's possible. Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. And as I said before, um, if you come up with something later on, just email it to me and we'll pop it right in there. It's very easy to do. Uh, well, I want to thank you for joining me today. And you've really given us some very not just interesting information, but practical, applicable things that people can do uh, to help with their backyard beekeeping, especially in the South. I think it's going to be great. 
I'm really glad I took the time to talk to you. I'm glad I reached out and that you responded and were willing to be interviewed. I think uh, you set the bar extremely high for up and coming bee researchers. And uh, I just want to thank you for being here. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. I greatly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for reaching out. I had a blast. So thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks a lot and good luck. And I'll be reading that paper for sure. I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of Interviews with Experts. Please don't forget to come back and check the video description for updated links so you'll be able to follow Atreya's progress as he finds the answers he seeks regarding honeybee health, nutrition, and management through continuous experiments at the University of Florida. I'm Frederick Dunn, and I wish you all the best in beekeeping.